From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The U.S. Supreme Court rules in a case that, according to Colorado's attorney general, could have upended democracy, will have analysis. Then, as COVID-19 cases jump elsewhere, Colorado's faring better. Overall, it looks like we're continuing to be in a pretty stable period in terms of transmission. But our public health officials brace for a post-4th of July bump. Plus, from emergency rooms to classrooms to meeting rooms, how the pandemic is starting to influence architecture and workplace design. Then, his hard work in southern Colorado's canola fields prepared him for hard work in college. His mom played a role, too. She always told me, mijo, study because a pencil weighs less than a shovel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The U.S. Supreme Court has found unanimously that presidential electors do not have the freedom to cast their ballots for any candidate they choose. The decision was just handed down. One of the cases they were ruling on, Colorado Department of State versus Baca, started at the state capitol here in Denver back in 2016. And CPR's political editor, Megan Verlee, was there from the beginning. She joins us. Good morning, Megan. Morning, Ryan. What happened with this ruling? Well, the justices were explicit. The Constitution says states may appoint electors, quote, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct. And the justices found that is a really broad mandate. You can require electors to live in your state. You can require uh, that they vote or that they cast their ballot for the winner of your state's popular vote, which is really what was at issue here. You can put a lot of rules on them as long as those rules don't violate the U.S. Constitution. So you could not say electors must all be Christian because that would violate the First Amendment. But uh, other than that, states have a lot of authority. And I should explain very quickly that there are actually two electoral college cases in front of the court. Uh, They were almost identical, one from Washington, one from Colorado. The ruling is actually in the Washington case. The, The ruling for Colorado is sort of legalistic ditto. Ditto. Okay. Um, What was the Colorado case about specifically? Well, what happened was this elector, Michael Baca, tried to cast his ballot for someone other than Hillary Clinton, who won Colorado in 2016. He was uh, trying to foment a revolt in the Electoral College, get people to uh, prevent President, uh, well, not then President, but uh, Donald Trump from getting a majority of electors, throw the contest into the U.S. House of Representatives and get somebody else into the White House. didn't go very far. uh, And his effort violated a Colorado state law saying he had to choose the winner of the state's popular vote. Uh, He wouldn't back down. He was removed from being an elector. And that was kind of the start of this legal challenge. How big a deal is this, Megan? You know, I think had they ruled the other way, it would be a really big deal. I mean, that's certainly what the state attorney general argued, right? Exactly. Uh, I mean, no electoral college revolution has ever really succeeded. Um, So a lot of this, even if they'd the other way would be a little bit hypothetical, but people would be, I think, scared that electors would start feeling their power. Uh, and interestingly, Michael Baca, I always thought, who is this guy who is like so passionate about the power of the, the Electoral College that he'd fight it to the U.S. Supreme Court? Doesn't like the Electoral College. He actually fought this case to try to underline to the American public what a 
undemocratic institute or what what a uh, sort of very narrow institution this is and how much power these 538 people have. And he was really hoping to stoke public opposition to the Electoral College. There is that point in school where you learn there is not direct election of the president, that it's these electors who hold sway. And to Justice Kagan laying that basic principle out in her decision this morning. Uh, One more question. Unless I think of another one Mm -hmm. between now and then, Megan, Um, you know, Colorado last year joined the National Popular Vote Compact, uh, the idea that states require their electors to choose the winner of the national popular vote, even if the other candidate won the state itself. This does not affect that movement. It does not, they say, I think, uh, had the ruling gone the other way, national popular vote could have ended up in court uh-huh. more than it already will. Um, but what they say is that the way the compact works is the so, – so every presidential election, there are two slates of electors chosen at the party's conventions. You've got a Republican slate of electors that's been chosen this year, and you've got a Democratic slate of electors that's been oh, okay. chosen. That, that was my potential last, last question, okay. which is who these electors are. So okay. each party, uh, the party faithful get together. They elect – they choose people to be electors. Now, whoever wins Colorado's popular vote gets to go to the Capitol after the election and cast those ballots. What the compact does is it says it won't be the the slate from the winner of the state's popular vote. It will be the slate from the party that wins the national popular vote. So the idea is those electors would still be loyal to their party. They would want to see their party's candidate win. And so they would cast their ballot for their party's candidate, even if Colorado had voted for the other party. Got it. Okay. So it's not settled what the future of the Electoral College is and how we work with it. Lots well, of people still want changes. Exactly. And I should note that while Colorado has joined the National Popular Vote Compact, it's very, very far from actually taking effect. Not enough states are a part of it. And there will actually be a measure on the ballot here in the state this fall that could potentially just repeal that rule and take the state right out of the compact. The immediate picture and the big picture from CPR's Megan Verley. Thanks so much, Megan. You're welcome, Ryan. She is public Affairs editor here at CPR News. Dramatic outbreaks of COVID-19 have occurred in states like Texas, Arizona, Florida, and Utah, while Colorado has so far seen only an uptick in recent weeks. So what explains the difference? CPR's Andrea Dukakis is tracking the numbers. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Ryan. Let's talk about Colorado's uptick. Is it significant? It's significant enough that the governor decided last week to reverse course and have bars in the state close again. And that's because case numbers have grown in June. But I also want to put this in some context. While the number of cases in the state has grown, so is the amount of testing. Mm -hmm. Wednesday of last week was the biggest testing day ever in Colorado, with more than 8,700 tests done. And the number that's really important in this is the percent of all of those tests that turn up positive. And that stayed relatively flat in Colorado, just under 4% for most of June. Glenn Mays at the Colorado School of Public Health says he's not worried yet. We're not seeing a dramatic trend in terms of growth in new cases. And then looking at the positivity data, the percent of tests that are positive, that also continues to be fairly stable. Hospitalizations are stable. Deaths are still very low. So Overall, it looks like we're continuing to be in a pretty stable period. 
So again, the percent of positive cases has been saying under 4% in Colorado. And just for comparison, in Texas, about 14% of the tests are turning up positive. And in Arizona, 26%. Wow. So a quarter of all tests in Arizona are coming back positive. Colorado had similar testing numbers to Arizona's, but that was way back in mid-April. So the state's come a long way since then. Say more about the why behind the slight uptick in Colorado lately. State officials I spoke with say it probably has to do with changes in behavior among Coloradans, more people getting out and getting together. The numbers also coincide somewhat with the lifting of restrictions on Colorado businesses. Sarah Thunberg heads up testing and containment of COVID-19 for Colorado, and she says she's not surprised at the numbers. It aligns with what we would expect as more and more people interact with each other. We expect to see more disease transmission. And Glenn Mays of the School of Public Health agrees the economy reopening is likely one factor. That combined with tourism and, you know, in migration into the state, you know, into our more popular tourist areas of the state, we're going to certainly expect some importation of cases, particularly from states some of our border states that have much higher rates of transmission. Well, Andrea Dukakis, we just had a big holiday weekend, and I kept thinking, is this going to affect case numbers, you know? Well, it's too early to tell whether things like the 4th of July, uh, barbecues, things like that will increase the spread. It often takes several days from when someone gets exposed to when they get symptoms. So we'll be watching to see if there's an uptick in cases two weeks from now. Uh, We did look at the numbers after Memorial Day weekend, which came a bit early this year, and it did appear that weekend may have led to a small rise in case numbers. And health officials in Jefferson County are pursuing legal action against Bandemere Speedway. They say the race car track violated social distancing and crowd size requirements this past weekend on the 4th. What about the protests against police brutality and racism? Have they led to a jump in cases? There's actually some new research out about that. It's a nationwide study that included Denver, and the results are kind of surprising. Oh, how so? Well, cities with large protests didn't see greater transmission. It actually might have dipped a bit. And this doesn't mean protesters didn't spread the virus amongst themselves. And that's actually not what the research looked at. Andrew Friedson of CU Denver explains the protests help increase social distancing overall. That's because many, many other people stayed home to avoid all the upheaval. My eureka moment for this is that this is how important social distancing is, right? That you could have these large events with thousands and thousands of people, but if at the same exact time, everyone else is staying home just a little bit more, the growth rate of the disease did not change. Yes, you can transmit the disease in a large crowd. You can also transmit the disease at a grocery store or a hardware store or at your friend's backyard barbecue. These things are all dangerous. And that if you have one large event and at the same time, Everyone else, right? This is a large event, 10,000, 20,000 people, but you have another one, two, three million who are staying home. That can be enough to offset each other. He and his collaborators used health data, cell phone data to measure disease spread and distancing for that. That is fascinating. Uh, we have been hearing about certain pockets of the state where there's concern over new cases. Uh, how much does that worry state officials? 
Well, as we said, the numbers were enough to persuade Governor Polis last week to roll back the order that allowed bars to reopen statewide. And also last week, public health officials in Garfield County, which includes Glenwood Springs and Carbondale, announced they weren't going to further open the economy. And that's because of two consecutive weeks of increased positive tests there. A few weeks ago, we also heard about the hill near CU Boulder, where there was a cluster of young people who were getting the virus. But the numbers in these areas are pretty small compared to front-range cities. And Colorado's taken a pretty conservative approach when you look at states like Arizona, Texas, and Florida. Those places opened up quickly. They've seen huge jumps in cases and have had to shut back down. Okay, we'll continue to monitor things. Are there other theories behind why Colorado is faring relatively well, Andrea? Some experts tell me Colorado's population is pretty well educated and residents have tended to be more compliant about mask wearing and social distancing. The fact that Colorado's population tends to be younger also plays a role in the relatively low numbers of hospitalizations. Public health expert Glenn Mays says the state's now having problems moved quickly to indoor spaces, to open indoor spaces like restaurants and bars. And he says there's also the outdoor factor. Um, As we know, the virus is less likely to spread outside where air is constantly moving. And we also know Coloradans like the great outdoors and the state has a temperate climate. In some of the states experiencing the biggest outbreaks right now, May says the climate keeps people inside in air conditioning. In Florida and Texas, it's not real comfortable to be outside right now. These are hot and humid states. So actually, in the summertime, we tend to see more, you know, indoor time spent. Same is true, certainly, for Arizona, where summertime is not a time to be outside. In Colorado, mobility data shows another factor that could be limiting transmission. A lot of residents, especially in Denver, haven't been returning to their offices and are still shopping less than they did before the pandemic back in January and February. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and CPR's Andrea Dukakis joins us for a sort of COVID-19 reset. Where are we right now with disease spread and testing? We've heard time and again, Andrea, that testing is critical. You mentioned that record day of testing, but how's the state doing overall? The average number of daily tests has gone up a lot since May. As we said, the state just hit a high last week of over 8,700 tests on a single day. State officials like Sarah Thunberg have touted the increase in testing, which she says means the state's doing enough to capture disease transmission. At the same time, the governor had said in April he wanted the state to be doing 8,500 tests every day by the end of May, and the average daily numbers are far less than that. Um, There was also a recent release by the Harvard Global Health Institute and NPR that indicates Colorado's falling short with testing. It found the state's currently doing an average of 91 tests per 100,000 people. Harvard believes the state should be doing 225 tests a day per 100,000 people to keep the virus spreading, and many more than that to actually suppress the virus. Yeah, to keep the virus from spreading, I suppose. Yes, Um, yes. Are there enough test kits to meet that goal? I mean, that, that was a big question early on. Glenn Mays says testing is something the state needs to continue to work on. He says adequate testing supplies are still a problem. Still a problem. What other factors might keep more people from being tested. 
May says there's also still confusion about who should be tested. The state now recommends anyone with symptoms be tested, and those who think they've been exposed should isolate for 14 days. That's different from early on in the pandemic when supplies were much more limited. Uh, Sarah Thunberg, who again heads up testing for the state, says she's also working to make sure all Coloradans are within a relatively short distance of a testing type site, and she says the state's collaborating with primary care doctors and other health care clinics to do testing. We're also working to enhance the capacity of local businesses to do testing as you would go to a drugstore and get an influenza vaccine. For example, we'd like to augment capacity of those organizations to do COVID testing. Oh, okay. That plan may take some time to come together. Late Tuesday afternoon, the city of Denver announced that testing at Denver's Pepsi Center would have to reduce its hours after testing supplies became scarce. The reason was that test materials were being shifted to states having outbreaks right now. The next day, though, the Pepsi Center announced it'll resume normal hours this week after it gets a new shipment of testing kits. Andrea, thanks for this picture. We really appreciate it. Thank you. CPR's Andrea Dukakis, who continues to track COVID-19 in Colorado. Eventually, more people will return to office buildings and classrooms. But the places where we work, learn, and shop are starting to look and feel different by design. Architects are rethinking their craft with a stronger focus on health. Architects like Sheila Reuter. She designs healthcare facilities for the firm HKS Denver. Sheila, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Why don't we start with a sort of virtual walkthrough of a building designed with a pandemic in mind? And and maybe we start where most people meet a building, the entrance. How is an entryway, which can be a kind of pinch point, you know, how, how might that be transformed in the COVID era? You know, um, what we really want to do in buildings that are already existing is rediscover ways to use things that are already there in a way that will help improve safety and well-being of its occupants. So if we look at the portal of a building or the vestibule, we can use that space to do screening for visitors to make sure that they have a lower temperature, to make sure that they're not having symptoms, to hand out masks and provide hand sanitizer to let them know this building is safe and you are safe entering. So that is an example of how existing buildings are starting to shift to new necessities. And I suppose as you move forward, you could build that kind of thing into an entryway that would otherwise be pretty pinched. You can. And as you do that, you can include additional items in new construction. You can put a hand washing station in there, which not only provides you the opportunity to wash your hands, but also is a a mental reminder to constantly pay attention to what you're touching and who you're touching afterward. Um, That can also um, include additional security measures for other emergencies that we may not be thinking about that are uh, uh, conditions are always changing. So it could be a security portal um, to control for an active shooter, for instance. Ah, serving, in in other words, uh, multiple needs. Um, I I guess I I hear in some of your answers a sense that a building is not just a place we house people. It is also sending a signal. 
Um, it's telling people you're safe here or you're not safe here. There's like messaging in architecture. There is. There is. Um, and we can we can utilize a lot of different parts of existing and new buildings to help with that. So another um, a way of, of creating that sense is compartmentalization. So in existing buildings, we have, say, an office suite that is a separate compartment from other areas of the building. And we can use other things that are built in, like uh, fire and smoke doors that are typically on a hold open. And we can close those to compartmentalize. So in COVID, you can use those compartments to keep different populations separated to minimize contact with others. And then in a security instance, you can use those to, for instance, keep an active shooter out of that zone. And you can also build compartmentalization, as you call it, into new buildings as well, so that you're affecting, in a way, the traffic flow, right? Absolutely. Yes. So keeping keeping uh, populations apart. And then you can also uh, set up your um, mechanical system to ventilate each of those compartments separately. So if there does happen to be a COVID case in one of those compartments, you can exhaust that and keep that um, infected air away from the other compartments. Yeah, this is some of what we might not see, how the HVAC could adapt uh, essentially to create these compartments of air within buildings. Is is that really expensive to do for an existing building? It can be an, an expensive um, retrofit, uh, depending on how the system is set up initially. Do you think that you'll be able to look back in like 20 years and say, oh, that that's a COVID building? I mean, will the pandemic have that profound... Uh, an effect on architecture? You know, I think we don't want to um, overcorrect because we are going to want to get back to a place where we can collaborate and socialize face-to-face. There's no accounting for uh, face-to-face socialization. Um, you, you can't replace that. And so we want to make sure that when we can, we can, we're able to get back together again to hopefully um, those changes won't be so obvious that it actually feels different. Yeah, that's a fascinating balance then that architects are having to achieve right now, which is how can we think about buildings to keep people safe in this moment? But as you say, not overcorrect, not have the pendulum swing so far that we've created spaces that feel unworkable in a new environment, which, you know, cross our fingers comes soon. Sheila, thanks so much for this. I really appreciate your perspective. Thank you very much. Sheila Reuter is an architect at HKS Denver, where she designs healthcare facilities. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. We will talk about Echo in Colorado, Spanish for Made in Colorado, the name of a new exhibition opening today at History Colorado Center. It is a passion project for our guest, Echo in Colorado. In the next half hour, I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.
News changes daily, and every day, CPR and NPR bring you reliable, up-to-date information, facts and advice, news about what's happening in your state. You have access to this important coverage thanks to the generosity of members who continue to make voluntary donations. Join them. Sustain CPR for yourself and for the benefit of the thousands of listeners who rely on Colorado Public Radio every day. It's easy at CPR.org. Colorado, Spanish for Made in Colorado, is the name of an exhibition opening today at History Colorado Center. And it's just the tip of the iceberg for Adriana Abarca of the Latino Cultural Arts Center, which is collaborating on the show, even as it builds a cultural campus in the heart of Denver, and welcome to the program, Adriana. Thank you very much, Ryan. I think to call this a passion project for you is an understatement. It features 50 pieces of art that you collected personally over the decades, along with your parents. And I understand that one of your favorite pieces on display is a photograph of a young girl who's draped with both an American flag and a Mexican flag. Uh, Who's the artist and why? Is that image so resonant for you? The photograph uh, is a digital photograph that was um, created by a local artist named um, Quentin Gonzalez. He's a professor at UCD. And I appreciate the duality um, because a lot of us in community, in the Chicano-Mexicano community, um, feel that we exist really between um, two realities to countries um, just from the history of this region and uh, the history of our ancestors and um, it, 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 we really feel that we're not just one or the other but we're a combination we're a hybrid and is that a source of pride for you very much so um, we feel that we have two heritages um, and two cultures two histories to draw on Um, uh, not just limited to one. I understand many of these artists became, for you, like friends and family. Just tell us briefly about your childhood, and I think especially your father's interest in Mexican heritage and culture. Um, Our father, uh, Luis Abarca, was from central Mexico. He came to the United States in 55 and and first uh, went to Chicago and then came through Denver um, in the late 1950s, where he met our mother, Martha Barca, who was Irish-American and raised in North Denver. And um, they started the family here in in Denver. And we grew up at a time when, uh, with the rise of the Chicano Civil Rights Movement, and were very much influenced by uh, that uh, movement, but also f- for the fact that our father was very proud of his Mexican heritage and had uh, a a lot of understanding of it, and he took us off into Mexico to go to the museums to see the monuments and the murals, etc., to go into communities and really appreciate our cultural heritage. Was he a collector? Uh, Our parents started the um, art collection, the fine art collection, in the late 1970s. Um, They started a business called Ready Foods, which is still in existence. We're going into our 50th year soon. And as um, they had some spare change, so to speak, my father, when he would go visit the artists in their homes on the weekends, he would encourage them, um, you know, offer them 
uh, to go eat some menudo or tacos on the weekends and oftentimes would find works in their studios that he would purchase hmm. and then bring to Ready Foods and hang in the offices. And then it, he was so um, enthused with what they were doing that some of that art ended up, you know, coming into the household. And and eventually I took over that uh, that passion and that love for the arts um, especially after my experience working at the Mexican Museum in San Francisco and also in an art gallery and an artist management agency. So I, what I saw in California, I wanted to um, have happen here in Denver and in Colorado. So um, I was very much um, influenced uh, by my father's love of the culture, but then I just um, uh, learned so much from my time out in California and brought it here to Colorado. I mentioned that you founded the Latino Cultural Arts Center of Colorado uh, in Denver, and you're building a cultural campus, I think, both in, um, well, in the Sun Valley and La Alma Park neighborhoods. We'll we'll talk about that in just a moment, but more on the works that are on display at History Colorado Center. I mean, they're both ancient and contemporary, rural and urban. Talk about the range of expression. So the I, I say this is a, a celebration of 50 years of artistic expression from our Chicano Mexicano community. Uh, the oldest piece in the in the exhibition is from 1970. It's a rally poster um, from uh, the Chicano Civil Rights Movement time. And then I have pieces that were created literally this year. And there are uh, 40 artists represented and various mediums, uh, including textile arts, literature, paintings, and sculpture. I thought it was very important to um, carry. I have four examples of textiles that were created. One is a, a dance, a folklorico dance outfit. One is a zoot suit. And we also have a jumpsuit from a local graffiti artist and a very beautiful uh, creation by Beto Mojardin of Latin Fashion Week, Colorado, one of his very beautiful gowns that is hand-painted. In addition, we have um, the scroll of Adrián Molina, Molina Speaks, uh, that he has used for the last 10 years for his um, spoken word. Yeah, the performance uh, we artist. Have, yeah, and, and just the, the performance artist, Molina Speaks. And, and just before you yeah. go on about other pieces of art, I was interested, you mentioned the zoot suit. Describe it yes. for us. Of course, the zoot suit... Um, it's really just a piece of iconic fashion, uh, a cultural statement, you know. Yes, very much so. And it is uh, the zoot suit is positioned in front of a photograph that was taken in 1980 by Daniel Salazar that shows uh, uh, the Chicano Dance Theater Company um, all dressed in in um, the zoot suits and um, in front of you know the the vintage. Uh, cars and um, it goes to highlight also the importance of car culture in the Chicano um, and Mexicano communities. And um, there, there's also poetry by Lalo Delgado. There's uh, uh, the books, over ten books written by Manuel Ramos, um, a novelist here. Um, it's, it's really important to to point out that we create in various uh, mediums, not not just the traditional painting and sculpture, although that's primarily what no. it is, is painting and sculpture and drawing, but not exclusively. 
Adriana Abarca then, joins us uh-huh. from the Latino Cultural Arts Center, which is collaborating on this show at History Colorado called Echo in Colorado, Made in Colorado. But I do want to talk before we wrap up about this cultural campus in the Sun Valley and La Alma Park neighborhoods of Denver. What do you envision on this campus? We have three locations. Two of them are in Sun Valley and one is in La Alma. And the the La Alma location, we are opening the uh, Community Arts Center in January of 2022. And there we're going to teach um, dance, music, and the visual arts to community, all age, uh, age groups and all skill levels. And that's just the start of... Um, on the other side, in Sun Valley, we're going to ha- create a more advanced academy, and we're going to have live workspace for artists, and eventually a Mexican Heritage Museum, where this collection that's on view now will be housed. But it sounds to me, Adriana, like you will be nurturing the artists whose works you may collect ten years from now. You know? Yes, certainly, and and so it's all about. Um, elevating our artists and inspiring and uplifting our community. Has that been a challenge in the past, do you think? I would say very much so. Um, It's been my life's work really to ensure that our history is not uh, lost, erased, ignored, or omitted, as it has historically been. Do you feel that that's been intentional, that omission? I uh, oftentimes I do believe so, and I'm grateful that now our major institutions are finally finally um, opening up and realizing that omission and um, and the harm that it has done, not only to our own community but to all of Colorado. That uh, we we really enrich the fabric of this state, and we've made numerous contributions on all levels, and it's time to acknowledge those contributions. You're also working on creating a research library. What, what does that entail, and, and why do you think it's important? Oh, thanks for mentioning that. Um, I think it's essential that we educate our, our community, um, again, in all that has been lost, um, and also to create new knowledge and, and new expressions. Uh, we have well over 4,000 titles of books in English and Spanish that pertain to history and culture. Um, our, our primary library is Mexican, but we're now developing the Chicano and the Latin American libraries so that uh, it'll be a destination um, from, for researchers, but also a great resource for our, our entire community to learn more about the contributions of the Mexicanos and, and Chicanos uh, to the world. We have less than a minute, but I, I do wonder how you think this focus on... Chicano artists speaks to this moment of reckoning of social justice in the country before we go. Yes, it's long overdue, and I'm just grateful that our time has has, has finally come. And I think that now that the doors are open, they'll stay wide open, and um, it can only benefit everybody. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. Adriana Abarca is founder of the Denver Latino Cultural Arts Center and curator of Echo in Colorado, Made in Colorado, which opens today at History Colorado. Alejandro Tovar recently became one of the first in his family to graduate college, and he sees it as a springboard to help others. Tovar came to the San Luis Valley from Mexico 10 years ago with his mom and younger sisters. This is a rural area that there's a lot of lack of resources, so you can see 
how people here just work to survive. Tovar was born in Arizona. His family moved to Mexico when he was a kid, and he lived there till he was 18. His family struggled financially, which made education difficult. We have trouble trying to pay high school, imagine in college. But his mom wanted to find a way. In Mexico, you can hear in the radio a lot of promotions like, oh, you're interested to work in, in the field, you can go to Center, Colorado. And so they relocated. Center is about 30 minutes northwest of Alamosa. Tovar had to finish high school in Center before he could apply to Adams State. At first, he had trouble enrolling at Center High, but when they learned he was a citizen, he got in. To support the family, his mom worked in the fields. So did Alejandro Tovar. I work in the fields every summer. That was my first job, working in the canola fields. I work in the potato and the spinach. He also did factory work, bagging flour. These summer jobs motivated Tovar to keep studying. Because that feeling of working, like waking up at 5 a.m., working until 3, 4 p.m., and just having 15 minutes of break to eat a burrito and go back to work in the field. That feeling just made me go back to college. Like, I just want to go back. His mom kept him going, too. She's the person who inspires me. Like, when I was working in the field, she always told me, like, mijo, study because a pencil weighs less than a shovel. A pencil weighs less than a shovel. Perseverance, he says, was critical. Being the first person of your family trying to attend college is hard, and English as your second language, too. He decided to face that challenge head-on, becoming an ambassador and campus guide at Adams State. In the beginning, I was very scared because I was like, I don't know if people will understand what I'm saying. I don't know if I will be able to do this. So I just tried to push myself, trying to go out of my comfort zone. He also wasn't sure which classes to take first. When I started college, I didn't know anything about college. So I remember I took my class based on my professor's last name. And one of my professor's last name was Gonzalez. She was the professor for sociology. And that class went well, so? I took sociology classes with other professors, and I like it. I like the opportunity to know more. Tovar chose sociology as his major, a field in which statistics are critical. It was something interesting because in one point, I'm in a statistic, like I'm against the statistics, I'm going to college, and I'm learning all this stuff, how this society is constructed in a form that our people are oppressed, do not have the opportunities to get out of that cycle of poverty. He studied criminology and social work as well. A criminal justice class gave him a lot to think about. How our system makes wrong convictions and how minorities are persecuted, are targeted by police, and how mass incarceration affects all of us. So, now that he's graduated college, what's next? I like to work with immigrant and migrant people. So having this knowledge, I will use it to go back to my community and help them. Until he finds that job, Tovar is helping with a research project for the Colorado Trust. And his mom's hard work is paying off because his sister, Elisa, graduated in June as well. Still to come. One big question this election is how Senator Cory Gardner might outperform President Trump here. Our Caitlin Kim takes on that question. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
Jake the Snake Roberts is a legend in the world of wrestling. Being in buildings with 60, 70, 80,000 people setting records everywhere we went and having the snake bite Macho Man, which is iconic. Those were great moments, but I wasn't enjoying them. On the season finale of Back From Broken, it's Jake the Snake's story. Find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Republican U.S. Senator Cory Gardner is in an unusual position heading into the general election. He's an incumbent underdog. With Colorado trending bluer, Democrats hope to flip the seat and get closer to regaining control of the chamber. But CPR's Caitlin Kim reports many aren't ready to discount the Yuma Republican just yet. Cory Gardner has long topped the list of most vulnerable senators. He's one of two Republicans running for re-election in states that Donald Trump lost in 2016. Jessica Taylor oversees Senate coverage for the nonpartisan Cook Political Report. They've listed the seat as a toss-up, in part because the demographics of Colorado are changing, younger and more progressive. But the bottom line is that Colorado is a state that is moving farther and farther away from Republicans. So Gardner needs to appeal to moderates. And that, says Republican strategist Josh Penry, means Gardner needs to stress his accomplishments. That will be his argument, is to try and play above partisanship to say, look, I'm back there, I'm representing Colorado, and I'm doing a good job. Senator Cory Gardner, who I talk with multiple times every day, has done everything I've asked to help in our response. Gardner's first political ads have done just that, stressing how he's tried to help Colorado through the pandemic and his role in bringing the BLM headquarters to Grand Junction. Penry says this race is far from a slam dunk for Democrats. Gardner is a scrappy campaigner. He ran the Republican Senate campaign arm in the last cycle and has good connections. And Penry says the race won't just be a referendum on Gardner, but on former Governor John Hickenlooper. If John Hickenlooper doesn't get his act together, if he doesn't like even pretend to care, if he doesn't you know, show up, if he doesn't work hard, I think, you know, I think certainly it'll be a very competitive race. And that means fighting for every vote and really studying the electoral math. Yes, math. For Gardner, that math means not losing by too much in Democratic strongholds like Denver or Boulder and making sure Pueblo County, which went for Trump in 2016, stays with Gardner this year. Republican consultant Tyler Sandberg says that is very possible. They are working class uh, conservative Democrats in both Adams and Pueblo. And I think Corey has a great chance to actually do even better in those two counties than he did in 2014. It also means keeping the race close in counties around Denver, like Jefferson and Arapahoe. The other thing that might help Gardner is Coloradans' tendencies to cross party lines when voting. I think voters will recognize they don't want one party to control the House, the Senate, and the presidency. And a vote for Cory Gardner would be a vote for split government and a check on Joe Biden. If he wins. Still, it's not something pollster David Flaherty would bet on. It's not something that I would say is to hang your hat on. He runs Magellan Strategies, a voter opinion research firm. But I think that argument right now will just resonate with the base of the Republican Party and fall on deaf ears uh, among the middle and the unaffiliated voter. Trump is proving to be a polarizing and unpopular figure with that group. And Democrats will likely exploit that tying Gardner to Trump and reminding voters of the times he's been in lockstep with the president, something Trump himself pointed out to voters at a February rally in Colorado Springs. And you're going to help us get Cory Gardner across that line because he's been with us 100 percent. 
There was no waiver. It's a line that seems tailor-made for Democratic attack ads. And here is Gardner's dilemma. How to turn out a Republican base that passionately backs the president at a time when polls show much of the country unhappy with Trump. Flaherty says voters who think Trump has lacked leadership on coronavirus or the racial unrest in the country may get turned off of all Republicans, even strong campaigners like Gardner. Honestly, it's a total disaster for a candidate like Cory Gardner um, because it doesn't help him one bit and it actually will hurt him. Many factors that can determine the outcome of his race, like the president's approval ratings or the state of the economy, remain largely out of Gardner's control. Jessica Taylor with the Cook Political Report summed it up like this. And I think that Cory Gardner could run a virtually perfect campaign and still lose this race. If Gardner, the happy warrior, is worried about Trump headwinds, he didn't show it, telling Colorado Matters he thinks Trump will win re-election, and he will too. Uh, I think this country and Colorado have benefited from the work that we have continued to do, and we can always improve. Absolutely, we can always do better, and we must do better. The question is, will it be better for Trump and Gardner by November. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. The long weekend brought more demonstrations calling for justice for Elijah McClain. Meanwhile, three Aurora police officers were fired. Two of them were dismissed for taking selfies at McClain's memorial site. A third officer was let go for not notifying supervisors about the photos. A fourth resigned earlier in the week before a pre-disciplinary hearing. Here's interim Aurora Police Chief Vanessa Wilson addressing the public and her own department. We will get through this, but hold your heads high because we know that there are cops that have integrity, they understand duty, and they understand honor. These four don't get it. And if any officer in this police department disagrees and thinks that this was acceptable, I will gladly accept your resignation today. One of the selfies shows the officers smiling as they reenacted the chokehold police put on the 23-year-old McLean. He was stopped walking home from a convenience store after someone reported suspicious activity. Police say McLean struggled with them. An EMT injected him with a sedative after the chokehold. McLean had a heart attack on the way to the hospital. Aurora Mayor Mike Kaufman released a statement on Twitter saying he agrees with the decision to fire the officers. Protesters took to the streets after Chief Wilson announced the firings. Will Carter lives in the neighborhood next to Elijah McClain's. All black lives matter, but when it happens close to home, you know, it hits a little different. So I think, you know, the fact that people see that something like that could happen here in our own city, I think that's going to touch a lot of people differently. Are we going anywhere? Are we going to stay here for justice? You hear that? Chief Wilson, you want us out? Fire Nathan Woodyard and Randy Rodima, the final two pigs who killed Elijah McLean, have no business on our streets. Governor Polis has ordered the investigation into McLean's death be reopened. The attorney general is now looking into the case. The Denver Division of the FBI, the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, and the Colorado U.S. Attorney's Office are also investigating. Finally today, a timely release from Denver rapper Knowledge. He has a new music video recorded at the protests in Denver that followed the police killing of George Floyd. 
The song is simply titled Black Lives Matter. He says he actually recorded the song back in June of 2017, demonstrating how for black Americans like himself, this cause is not merely a trend or a hashtag. I've been had that song, and when all this was happening, it's all like my brother, he is all like my manager. He called me, and he was like, hey, bud, it's time to drop that Black Lives Matter. So I was like, sounds like a plan. So I called my cameraman, and he came to my crib the next day around 12 o'clock, and he went out to the protest. And I was letting everybody know, like, y'all keep doing everything that y'all doing. And um, I'm going to shoot the video. And this new music video starts with news footage of the beating of Rodney King, as well as video of the death of George Floyd. Then there's audio from an interview with the legendary rapper Tupac. I remember when I was poor, I hated myself. Now I love myself. So I see what the curse can do. And I see what it takes to get it off you. It just takes a real confidence. And that's what we're missing as black people. We let them make us feel like, you know, quiet again, just being quiet. You know what I'm saying? Telling you that that wearing gold chains is hoochie. And that's that's played out because they make jokes about it. Wise words from a legend. Yo, this your boy knowledge. As black people, we must dream like Martin, lead like Harry, fight like Malcolm, write like Maya, build like Madam C. And believe like they're good. But most important of all, we got a challenge like Rose. I'm a nice guy. Facial expression may seem mean. With a Ben and Jerry hustle, it's nothing I seen cream. I'm making money sleep, so I ball like Dream Team. This on research. And your background faker than green screen. I'm downstairs, politicking with sensei. Told me, listen to God, don't interpret with sensei. Every time I speak truth, outcome. Win hate, so it's clear. The line on top like Penn State. I've been great. Viewing this world unstable. Gotta think for yourself. Can't believe what they show on cable. Masculating in the black man, that's what they show on cable. Biblical flipping cane opportunities weren't able. Unstable, Gemini twin, one's fatal. Prophesized the spirit since birth, that's prenatal. Now we bait them, luring them in. Fishing hooks, exposed to fraud, still in the game. Labeled them crooks. And my third eye open, I'm getting missed. Black Lives Matter, a new track from Denver rapper Knowledge. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Black lives matter. They matter. Black lives matter. We matter. Black lives matter. They matter.